So today's pod was a bit of an emergency pod because my guest today, who I'll reveal in a moment, needed this time to discuss a specific agenda, an action plan, or as he calls it, a contract with Black America. And it deserves some in-depth discussion. But one of the actionable plans laid out in this contract directly ties into our word of the week, which is reparations. Very interesting development out of Asheville, North Carolina, where the city council unanimously voted to provide reparations and apologize to its black residents for the city's role in slavery, discriminatory housing practices, and other racist policies throughout its history. To which I say, let the church say amen. So what does reparations look like in Asheville? Well, according to ABC News, the city plans to reinvest in the black community, increase minority home ownership, business ownership and career opportunities. They'll also come up with strategies to address generational wealth. Now, see, America, that wasn't so hard, was it? Now, we've been having this conversation about race, racism, systemic racism, oppression, institutional racism and all that for years and years and years and years. And I'm a firm believer that if you keep doing what you're doing, you'll keep getting what you're getting. And the solution that seems obvious is reparations. As the good folks in Asheville know, this doesn't mean just cutting a check to every black person in the city. There are a number of ways to address institutionalized racism, providing free education, improving schools and underserved areas, tax breaks, job training, serious criminal justice reform, which includes defunding the police. This country can't lean on the lazy excuse that we don't know how to do it or where the money to fund systemic changes is going to come from. Not when during this pandemic, we literally saw this presidential administration come up with billions and trillions of dollars like it was spare change left in the couch pillows to keep the economy from completely falling off the cliff. Reparations has to be on the table and not just on the table. Really, it's the starting point because racism and white supremacy has robbed black folks of generations of untold wealth and locked us into the fate of being a permanent underclass. We can start with racist housing policies that were widespread across the United States and essentially created the ghettos you see today. We can work our way to mass incarceration, which stole thousands of black men who were targeted in the sham known as the war on drugs, who were imprisoned for minor drug offenses such as marijuana possession. And now marijuana is legal, but yet thousands of black men are still sitting in prison where they have been unable to earn money to support their families and created or continued a cycle of poverty. Reparations now, reparations forever. And that is our word of the week. As I mentioned, today's word directly ties into today's guest, who is the only repeat celebrity guest I've had on this podcast. I realized the first repeat guest I had on this pod was my husband, though I'm sure he would consider himself a celebrity. Now, last year when this podcast was just getting off the ground, Ice Cube was one of my first early big guests. And now he's returned because in case you haven't been paying attention to Cube's Twitter feed, he has been focused on black liberation, justice and equality. He's collaborated with other experts to create the document I referred to that is called A Contract with Black America, 
which is a deep dive into systemic changes that could be made in housing, finance, education, and employment that would improve the lives of Black Americans. He has posted this contract on his Twitter page, and I promise you, it is very detailed and thorough. And he's not done with this document yet. Now, Cube and I are going to get into that heavy, but also... The day we taped this podcast, The Hollywood Reporter posted a column by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, one of Cube's heroes, in which the legendary Los Angeles Lakers Center called out Cube for a series of tweets that seemed to insinuate that Jews were responsible for Black oppression. Besides Kareem, others have taken aim at Cube in recent weeks for not just the tweets, but his praise of Minister Louis Farrakhan, whose history is littered with anti-Semitism. So Cube is going to give his perspective on being perceived as anti-Semitic and answer some tough questions that I have about what was behind those tweets. So let me just warn you up front that this podcast is about some serious shit. So serious, in fact, that I ditched this or that because with all that we have to discuss, it just didn't feel right to end on something so frivolous. And as Cube is about to explain, he wasn't really in the mood for games. So let's get into it. Ice Cube up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. Now, Cube, you've always been somebody who has been politically outspoken throughout your whole career and I imagine your whole life. But man, you've been on one lately um, by really focusing and centering pretty much all of your social media uh, engagement on police brutality, what's happening in America, racial conversation, like a whole bunch of stuff. Um, what made you, again, you've always been this way, but if I feel like you went up a level. What made you go up a level? Um, you know, the time is right. The time is now. Um you know, I've always been ahead of the curve sometimes where I, you know, jump out there before the people are ready. But when the people are ready, it's time to reemerge and um, and try to give uh, some context, um, you know, some direction, uh, some uh, in, in some cases, leadership uh, from my vantage point, you know, and. And sometimes it's just dissecting what's coming over uh, social media. But, you know, I've been doing it in different ways throughout my career, you know, whether it's you know, records, uh, sneaking in into the movies where I can. Um, and, and, you know, of course, uh, you know, the basketball league that I have is, is uh, driven by diversity. Um, players have ownership in the league. So it's, uh, you know, it's something that's been part of my life. And so this is just uh, another extension of, of everything I've been doing my whole career. You've been around where we have started to have these kind of conversations that we've had to now and start to push for change. I mean, um, you know, NWA, for many of us, put police brutality, unfortunately, on the map by some of the things you guys were rapping about. I mean, even you know, what you were saying, the videos and all that, you went through Rodney King, you've been through other points in American history where we have seen black men brutalized by the police. Why do you think people now are ready for a different level of conversation, a more serious conversation 
because of George Floyd? Like, what was it about this that seemed to trigger a much different conversation about race and police brutality than I've heard in my entire life? And I'm sure yours too. Just how evil it was, you know, when it would discipline our people uh, back in the day, they would pull them out in front of everybody and do it so everybody could witness what can happen to you if you step out of line. Mr. Floyd wasn't stepping out of line with anybody at the time and killed in such a heinous way for all of us to witness, um, no matter what color you are. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's something that, um, that crossed the line, uh, especially with everybody being able to see it at the same time. Uh, everybody can witness this in real time at the same time unless there's some kind of, uh, you know, restrictions on your internet or whatever. So it was just, it crossed the line and it crossed a point of no return uh, that we can never go back to and never accept. We have to fight with everything we got to not get no, I don't want no, you know, uh, reform. You know, reform is, is bullshit. We equal, we want equality, we want a slow drag, we want the real deal, equal, nothing less, we're nobody's property no more. Us, we're not ex-slaves. You know, anybody born after 1865 is not an ex-slave. So we demand equality and, you know, we're going to get it. At least I'm going to fight my, you know, to my last breath to get it. And nothing is more important. Well, uh, right now, everybody is of the mindset of like, okay, we got to this moment. Everybody's talking. People are holding other people accountable or, or trying to. And in this moment of figuring out what the next step is, you have developed what you called a contract with Black America, which is a very detailed plan. And I couldn't find anything in there I disagree with having read it um, about what can be done in terms of reparations, um, closing the racial wealth gap in this country. I mean, it's very detailed that addresses jobs, education, like every sector of Black life that has been impacted by oppression, institutional racism, and all these other said forces. How did you develop this contract? What gave you an idea to put something on paper that addressed all the systemic issues that we're facing as a community? Well, um, years ago, you know, me and my partner worked on something called the American Jobs Pact, which was a great idea to, to let you know, anybody who wanted to learn a trade or learn how to get in the industry, you can learn for free, no matter what age. You don't have to be college age. You can be you're 31 and you figure, you know, I need to get off my ass and do something. You can go in and, and learn a trade. Um, all you had to pay was community service. So you put in so many hours of community service, that was your tuition. Uh, so that's how people can go to school without having to come up with all this tuition uh, and learn a trade or different trades without that. Then you had industry, okay? Here's how they win. They take their supervisors, their instructors, people that, that you know, help other people learn the job. 
you make them uh, class instructors and you teach the people of the community the job that you need done. Um, you teach the people in the community how to do it. Uh, you provide the equipment and the instructions and this, and you get it tax exempt. Okay. Government, you win by not only does the community, by community service, take care of itself in a lot of ways, but now you're pulling from an American job force. Your, your IP is not being stolen and taken to other countries to be developed faster and better, but your IP is staying here in America being developed. You're not, uh, you know, as far as government, you give the companies a tax exemption, okay, for their equipment and instructors they have to pay. So it wins all the way around. So through that and through all this, we realize that we need something more across the board, something that touches every area where we're being systematically shut out. You know, the fix is in. You know what I mean? It's, it's not fair, and there's no way to break through unless you make a breakthrough. So that's um, what the contract with Black America is trying to do is take care of this thing across the board um, where we can deal with this at this moment in time and not have to carry this baggage for more generations to come where this was never rectified. You know, basically we're 13.45, whatever number percent of the country, and we deserve 13 point whatever share of what America has to offer, especially when it comes to, you know, federal, state, local levels. So this is where that comes from. It's just an extension of trying to fix this with people who are serious about fixing the problem. One of the first things that you point out in this contract, uh, a contract with Black America, is a system of, of reparations. And, um, you know, we've had discussions about reparations and pockets, no real seriousness in this country. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but Asheville, North Carolina, uh, they just voted um, their city council seven to zero to formally apologize to its Black residents for the city's role in slavery and discriminatory housing practices and other racist policies, and also to provide reparations as part of this. For you, as somebody who's laid out the system of reparations, what does reparations to you look like for Black people in this country? Well, you know, a lot of people, you know, who are smarter than me have been studying up on this for a long time, on how do you measure it, if it was measured, how do you do it? Uh, there's a great uh, document uh, called Neo Reconstruction that uh, Chris Broussard and a few other people are working on uh, that has a detailed game plan. But reparations to me can happen in several different ways. You know, uh, is it um, you know not having to pay taxes for a certain amount of time? Uh, you know, that would make a lot of black people whole real quick. Um, and there's other things we can do where the government doesn't have to cut a check, but they can 
give relief in areas where we're paying just as much as white families who make 10 times more than us per household. Uh, so it's just a way for us to somewhat catch up uh, or at least get to a, a percentage that's fair. Um, right now, banks loan us 3% of their money, you know, across the board, you know, and 97% of the money goes to other businesses and other interests and not to our businesses and our interests in our households. That's incredibly unfair. You know, it should be, you know, 13.5% across the board should be available to um, businesses that qualify because you know we can qualify and still get denied. So um, we got to rectify these systematic things that are meant to never uh, allow us to catch up to this wealth gap. Every time the conversation about reparations come up, as you know, there is extraordinary pushback. And, you know, do you feel as if reparations, um, is that really the only real way we can ever rectify or reconcile some of the racial issues that have happened in this country. Cause I think when people think of racism, they don't understand that generations have been well, like wiped out as a result of racism and policies. I mean, you take something as simple as the GI bill because black soldiers were denied the GI bill at a time in history where you saw an extraordinary explosion in home ownership. And for us to be denied that, that means that you left generations of black families were unable to own homes and you know that that's the best way to build wealth. So because this conversation has been such a non-starter, I mean, if we just think about it, do you think that this is reparations is the maybe true way that we can actually address some of these systemic problems? You know, if you really look at the contract with black America, it's, it's all a form of reparations, you know, across the board, you know, there's sprinkles of reparations all through that. So it's not just a check, you know, it's not just a dollar amount. It's making things fair and it's helping us to catch up. Um, you know, if we make our neighborhoods right, you won't need as many police. You won't need as many of these um, systematic things that are funneled towards our downfall and not towards our up upliftment. Uh, we would take care of our own schools. We would, uh, you know, pick up the slack where, you know, local government is is failing. Um, our schools should be not per district, per um, where you live. It should be per student in the state. You know, every student in the state deserves the same amount of money given to them to, to achieve. You know, just because I come from a poor neighborhood, I shouldn't have to go to a poor school that never has a chance to be a great school because, you know, the way property taxes and things are paid out is just tilted, um, you know, against us. And all these things have to have to uh, be rectified. When I mentioned your uh, music at the top, it is amazing how well it holds up in 2020. Um, 
especially some of the things that you were saying about the police, you know, 20 some years ago, it was you that said, or the first person I heard say the police, the biggest gang in America. Right. And police reform, uh, even though maybe to your point, reform is not the right word, but reconstructing or reimagining the police is a big part of this document, a contract with black America. Uh, why are the police, um, you know, based off what you've experienced, what you've read and, and, and all that, why do the police seem so resistant to the most basic things? I mean, what people are asking is, A, don't kill us, yes. right? Like, that's not that hard, right? Simple. Don't kill us, especially when we're un unarmed. Mm -hmm. Real simple, right? Yeah. But th they don't want any checks and balances. And I'm just... I'm just grasping my mind and trying to figure out how did they get like this? Um, so why is it with the police that they are unable to see that they need more oversight? I don't get it. Well, I think it's a system. I think the, the origin of the police in this country and how you even became police officers tells you a lot about the system itself. Um, you know, they're operated one, most police don't give a damn about your rights. They're taught to win. Win, go home at night. That's it, pretty much. Win, go home at night. And so it builds a us versus them mentality. Uh, and, you know, they do operate <laughs> like a gang, and they'll tell you. Uh, you know, we're the biggest gang in the city. And, and they, you know, do what they want. You know, it's kind of like, you know, sometimes we're, we're like a sport. Tell some guys they can't play football, you know what I mean, after you know, Turkey Day and, and see what kind of fights you get. So, you know, we're not a sport. We're humans, uh, and, you know, we're not going to take that. We're not going to be abused. We understand you got to get the bad guys. We want you to get the bad guys. Uh, but leave the good guys alone and the good girls alone. Um, and so that's just how it is. You know, we've, we've, we've had enough and they have to change the way they are. You know, they can change overnight. All they gotta do is treat us like they treat white citizens and everything will be all right. Yeah, the power of the police union, I think people are now trying to understand just how powerful these unions are. Um, because I, I'll be honest, as much as I felt like I knew about this issue, I was not aware that so many cities were being held hostage by the police unions with these contracts that are guaranteeing that they basically don't have to fire anybody. They don't have to be held accountable and they are guaranteed raises no matter what is the level of performance. And I'm just like, there's no way in any part of business in America where this would actually fly. Like it's, it's preposterous. And what's crazy, you know, taxpayers, we pay all this money and we're paying for the police. We're playing for the police unions and the DAs and all the people that work up in there. We're paying for them. Then the cop goes out, you know, violates somebody. And then the city gets sued for millions of dollars. And then the taxpayers have to pay again. And that cop is not held accountable. And nobody's held accountable. And here we go again. And it's, and it's you know, how many millions have taxpayers paid out because cops can't control themselves and um, understand their real duty. So it's just, uh, you know, it's, we're getting the shaft going and coming and there's no accountability 
and it got to stop. You know what I mean? It got to stop because one thing America needs to, not only America, but the world needs to really, really um, understand is they're breeding generations of people who don't give a damn about authority. And so if they continue to do that, they won't have nothing. Nothing is going to work right. Nothing is going to function the way it's supposed to. And you get respect by giving respect. And when you're not giving nobody respect, it's not just black people. You know, it's everybody. Everybody that's not blue, you know, gets treated uh, most of the time with aggression if they're not um, totally submissive. And sometimes even when they are, they get it. Uh, So it just got to stop. And it will stop. Now that you've developed this uh, very comprehensive contract, what do you plan to do with it now? Get support, you know, from people who, like I said, this is a document that needs to be perfected. We need smart people. We need everybody, all hands on deck, to create the perfect document that, you know, somewhat deals with, you know, our needs on a mass level. And then we got to present it to uh, these candidates. You know, um, like, you know, we, we always talk about how conservatives come at us, but, you know, white liberals come at us too hard when, when the rubber meets the road. You know, now the rubber is meeting the road and you see people who may not be racist, but they are individualists and they do, don't mind uh, plugging into the racist system to benefit their own needs or wealth or whatever. We got to stop that shit too. You know, it's, you got to be down for right. You got to be down to make it right. Um, because if not, you're just on the other side, you know, uh, and, and, you know, showing that you're pretty anti-black when it comes to our progress and our equal, not just progress, but equality. Um, it's time for equality. So you have not yet given this contract to any, any lawmakers? No, right now I'm just dealing with people who have are experts in some of these areas that I've touched on um, and getting their feedback, getting their data. You know, we want this to be full of comprehensive, easy to follow uh, data. Um, and like I said, we want everybody who has a real stake in this to be able to comment and uh, make adjustments and make it better. And when we had a perfect document, then we'll start approaching lawmakers and saying, you need to support this. You need to sign on to this and you need to help us achieve this. Uh, You know, Cuba, you kind of sound like somebody who could potentially run for office. I'm just saying, Uh, have you thought about at all, like engaging in politics, given, you know, your background, how uh, passionate you are about these issues? You've collaborated to get this document together. I mean, that's something politicians do all the time. Well, I think I, I just think I'm too real for politics. Um, I think, you know, just me being a citizen that's concerned about my people, all people, but we're the ones that's at the bottom of the totem pole. So, you know, that's really what it's all about is trying to, you know, make people do their job at this point to push equality, true equality, and, um, you know, let them do what they, you know, get paid to do. And, you know, we'll see. 
I'll let you know who's on board and who's not. I'll let you know who's down for the cause and who's, you know, nothing but a distraction. So that's what it's all about. Would you ever, and of course, this is a big assumption because there would have to be some reception, right? I mean, they have to have to be able to receive it. But would you ever present this document to Donald Trump? Yeah, I think everybody who down to make this happen should have a chance to make it happen. You know, we at the bottom, you know, to to me, it's a shit show no matter who in there. We at the bottom. We ain't got nothing. <laughs> we still struggling. So it don't matter. You know, it's like we got to get who's going to be down with this, who's going to make it work. You know, I'm not a fan of Donald Trump. I'm not a fan of uh, Joe Biden. You know, just not a big fan of either man. But if either man, you know, had a um, moment, they call it come to Jesus moment. We want to be right there to make sure that our people benefit across the board because crumbs ain't going to work. Appeasement's not going to work. Reform is an insult. You know what I mean? That you're just going to rearrange your corrupt system. We need equality. And anybody down with that is down with me. All right. Um, well said, for sure. Uh, I want to ask you a little bit more about this contract. We're going to take a quick break. More with Ice Cube on Jamel Hill is Unbothered when we come back. For people who haven't seen this this contract, you do have it on your Twitter feed. Yeah. And... Um, you know, as I mentioned, it, it was really is very comprehensive. I know you said it's, it's still a work in progress. You're still adding to it. Yes, it's getting better every day. It's getting better every day. It, it definitely has a lot included. And one of the things that I think also that was important that was in there was talking about environmental racism, which kind of in all the other forms of racism we deal with, this is something that sometimes slides to the bottom of the priority list. Uh, you, I believe you have been... Um, in Flint recently yeah. because you're shooting uh, Clarissa Shields' uh, biopic, Flint Strong, which I I can't wait to see this movie. Um, you know, she's a boxer who became the fastest ever to win three uh, divisions, um, male or female. You spent some time in Flint shooting this. What did you see when, when you were there? I mean, this is a community that has been ravaged by environmental racism. What stood out to you when you were there? The spirit of the people. You know, the spirit of the people in Flint is to to make it work, you know, to to push through. Um, you know, it's it's a real shame how the city has uh, been kind of abandoned. Um, so it's not very uh, many people or resources, a lot of abandoned houses, uh, but the people are still they still have light in them and they still um, are looking to improve the community. So with a little help, with a little oversight, with a little give a damn, you know, the government can do a lot in that city to, to revive it. Um, it's just a shame, but well, water's being poisoned everywhere. You know, we, we see, um, you know, what's happening. I mean, it's people in Compton, who can turn on a faucet and, and, and light a fire, you know? So it's just, it's happening everywhere. 
Um, and, and we got to, it's, it's all about the earth. You know, it's time to, it's time to, to let the earth heal. You know, I mean, don't we have enough things? I mean, don't we have enough uh, stuff? Uh, everybody's house is full of stuff they need to get rid of. And everybody got a house full of stuff in the storage bin. Not everybody, but, you know, the people that understand, you know, the materialism is a road to nowhere, really. You know, so it's time, it's time for the people that know better to slow it down and not, you know, um, brag about it so much because and, and, we got we to gotta let the earth heal at some point in time. Uh, before I move on to something interesting that you tweeted today as we're taping this this podcast, um, Clarissa Shields, uh, interesting subject to pick. I mean, she is she's such a dynamic uh, woman. What what made you decide that you wanted to do uh, a biopic on her story? You know, I played Jason um, Clutchfield. I hope I got the name right. Um, <laughs> I ain't been on that set in a while, uh, but they're good people, and he's a you know, he was a fighter himself, a champion who had to take care of his sick mother, grandmother, and had to stop what he was doing. And he wanted to train fighters. And but he thought he was going to train boy guy fighters, men, you know, young men. And here comes Clarissa, who he shooed away so many times. And she kept coming back and she ended up being his best pupil and his best fighter and, and taking her to the top and seeing her get to the top, winning an Olympic medal and having nothing there for her at the end, just because she comes from a place like Flint and, it, and you know, she wasn't the quote unquote favorite, the sponsors didn't love her. And, she came back and won it again um, and then became a champion. See, this is what it's all about. These are real superheroes to me. You know, this is my first time playing a real person. You know, I'm usually playing characters. So to play a real guy, to meet his family, his friends, his cousin, uh, all the people that love him, to meet all the people that love Clarissa, and to be on this diverse crew, it was just something I had to jump jump on uh i'll help you out it was jason crutchfield, crutchfield. <laughs> jason crutchfield <laughs> i always say clutch crutchfield crutchfield that's my guy he's a good dude you know he's showing me how to you know put them together so it's pretty cool uh-oh oh he gave you a couple lessons i mean you know it, it, you got you got to rep in these streets for having some hands you know back in the day I mean, long long time you gotta ago. have them you know what i mean you gotta, you gotta be down to use them you know what i'm saying win lose a draw so everybody knows uh, you're a really big uh, Laker fan. And uh, today I noticed something that you tweeted. Um, you uh, reacted to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar criticizing you in a column he wrote for The Hollywood Reporter uh, in which he uh, accused you of being anti-Semitic. Uh, what was your reaction when you read the column? And uh, do you plan to have any conversations with Kareem about it? Well, I was hurt because... You know, I've met Kareem on a few occasions um, and he didn't reach out. Um, but, you know, I understand the situation. You know, I really, you know, go at the Hollywood Reporter more than that, you know, who, um, you know, these, these are the same people who 
who cover up, you know, for some of these Hollywood types for years. And then, you know, want to send my brother at me. So, you know, I was disappointed at Kareem for not reaching out. But to me, it's nothing to talk about. You know, I've, I've said you know, over 30 years, I'm not anti anybody. You know, I'm anti wrong. And wrong can come in any color, shape, or creed. And I will point it out every time I see it. Um, because that's just the way I'm built. That's the way I'm cut. And I'm not going to um, not say what I see. So, you know, he has his opinion. I have mine. You don't have to agree with me 100% on everything. Um, I don't agree with 100% of anybody, you know, not even my own mama. <laughs> you know, everybody says something that you don't agree with and you still love them. So I still love Kareem and uh, he's still my brother. And, you know, one day we, we may run into each other and have a conversation. It's been an accusation that's been lobbed at you a lot, especially over over recent weeks because of of some of your your tweets. Um, what when you think about what the criticism have have been? Could you? Is there a part of you, or any part of you, that can understand why some people might jump to this conclusion with you posting the star of David with a black cube of Saturn, and also? Uh, you know, giving props to Louis Farrakhan, who, as we know, has always been in the midst of controversy um, and frankly has been, in many respects, the criticisms of him being anti-Semitic have been, I'll be frank, have been warranted. So what what do you say to the people who see these things and then wonder, well, what's, what's Cube on? Like, what's this really about? Well, you know, I'm pretty sure if you connect dots like that, uh, which are to me apples and oranges, um, you know, what I tweet about is one thing, what Farrakhan talks about is another thing. You know, I just said that I don't agree with 100% of anybody. So there's things that everybody say that I don't agree with, and there's things that I agree with. So, um, you know, there's things, of course, about, um, you know, Black self-empowerment, um, you know, there's anti-drug messages, uh, uh, anti-criminal um, crime, weapon uh, messages uh, that resonate. So, um, you know, I'm not going to let anybody pick who I should um, listen to, who I shouldn't listen to, who I should uh, be down with and who I shouldn't be down with. So. Anybody think they're going to do that and be able to pick that for me? It's not going to happen. You know, anybody offended by my art or anything I put out or anything that I've said or I tweeted, um, you know, to me, I'm not trying to hurt anybody's feelings. I'm just trying to get to the truth. Um, so, you know, I'm not trying to hurt your feelings. Uh, if I did hurt your feelings, I apologize for hurting your feelings. But, you know, at the end of the day, I'm going to say what I need to say and do what I need to do to help us get over this hump. And, you know, I would deal with with the arrows as they come. Um, and, you know, when you start to get arrows from all sides, you're probably on the, the, the right path when you're talking about trying to find the truth. So, you know, to me, this is nothing but a distraction away from my contract 
with Black America. Uh, there's a lot of things in there. You know, when I talk about cookie jar companies, uh, companies who have benefited off of our pain, you know, we are coming after you. You will pay. You will be exposed. You, there's nowhere to hide. So a lot of these same cookie jar companies will come after me because I have a contract with Black America and it is a way to true freedom in this country. And nothing's going to stop me from being off that page. You know, leaving the the all the 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 Farrakhan part and everything all, all, that part of it aside, um, I'm wondering. Uh, I mean, you you're in you're in Hollywood. You've been a businessman for a long time. You clearly have done business and have Jewish friends. Um, have they ever come to you and said, "Hey, Cube, I know where your heart is." But some of the things, um, you know, like with Deshaun Jackson, what he posted was a fake quote and he didn't even know it, you know. And I worry sometimes when I see things like what happened with Deshaun Jackson about the level of misinformation that's out there. What have maybe some of your Jewish friends or um, people that you know in your circle, what have they said to you about some of these things? They haven't said anything. I mean, people in my circle know who I am, know what I'm about. No, I'm going to call out anybody and everybody, even black people. Uh, so they know how I come. And so they understand that. So none of them has said anything to me about this. Uh, you know, I have a partner that's Jewish. And um, he's pretty upset that people are trying to, to make this a distraction away from the real problem, which is black equality. You know, we can start shooting at each other about how... Um, People interpreted what you put out and this, that, and the other. But at the end of the day, clumping us together is not going to work. You know, everybody do their own thing, you know. What Deshaun Jackson said is, is, is him. It has nothing to do with me. What Steven Jackson said is him. It has nothing to do with me. Uh, what Farrakhan says is him. It has nothing to do with me. So... Uh, we're all individuals and we all got to be looked at as individuals. Now, people want to look at me and say, okay, he's anti-Semitic. I don't think they're looking close enough. And I think it's, it's really an, an escape hatch to not deal with the issues that I'm bringing up that need to be dealt with as, as you know, really affecting black people here in America. I want to bring it to to your sort of, I guess it's not even a side industry, the the music industry. um, You don't dabble in it as much as, as you used to, but there has been a lot of talk. I heard a lot of artists say this, that there needs to be a certain kind of reparations that takes place in the music industry, because there were a lot of artists, black artists in particular, who were taken advantage of. Um, And this is something that you, obviously wrapped about and experienced yourself on some level. What do you think needs to happen in the music industry? Because I saw a lot of them putting out Black Lives Matter statements, a lot of them, yeah. right? And we know that there's a, a particular history with how they treated Black artists. So what do you think the music industry should do to make this right? Yeah, well, the music industry, once again, cookie jar companies who have put together some, some contracts that were not favorable. Um, and very one-sided and lopsided and pretty unfair. You know, the same industry that's done that on one side and one level has invested in private prisons and, and, and has, you know, funneled our entertainers and our, um, our avenues to get to the public to project 
only one certain type of image um, to ensure that prisons were filled. So there's a lot of nefarious things going on with these companies and these parent companies that uh, we need to, uh, first they need to acknowledge and we need to fix and clean it up and uh, stop it uh, because nothing is going to change until we change this economic triangle that's invested in our uh, demise and our, uh, you know, jailing and our incarceration and our, you know, not getting justice. Uh, we have to break that triangle of, of uh, cooperation up. Uh, as everybody knows, as I said earlier, they know you're a huge basketball fan, particularly a huge Laker fan. You run your own league. Um, the NBA is going to try to have a season. Now they're inside the bubble. Um, are you, where's your level of confidence that they'll actually finish a season with COVID-19, you know, kind of looming? I'm not really worried about basketball right now, you know, or any sport. If you want to talk about the collective bargaining agreements and trying to change structure. Yeah. But, you know, to me, it's not the time for sport and play. You know, it's serious times. And I know guys got to report, do what they got to do. But, you know, now's not the time. You know, now's the time to, to fight for equality. Now, Kyrie Irving, um, you know, I know he's recovering from an injury, but he was definitely seemed to be one of the players who who also brought up what you just said, that he just didn't feel comfortable playing right now because of everything happening in the country. Several WNBA players have made that choice not to play because they want to fight for equality. Would you have been in favor of seeing the NBA, seeing the players essentially shut it down this season to focus on this fight for equality? Yes. You know, I think uh, it, it makes a big statement. I think it would get a lot of people's attention. Um, I think, you know, a lot of these companies, you know, that are cookie jar companies, when I say cookie jar, I mean, you got your hand caught in the cookie jar. So a lot of these uh, companies, you know, um, will be you know, more scrutinized uh, because if the games don't play, a lot of people are affected and a lot of things are on pause, a lot of things are on hold. This is time to me to examine everything and try to restructure everything because you fix one thing and then systematic racism um, makes up for it on the other end and gets you on the other end. So everything has to, to be fixed at the same time. Uh, with that being you know, said, like you, uh, with the players um, kind of feeling a little, uh, a little conflicted uh, about playing, and then kind of addressing or readdressing or, you know, reprioritizing their professional life. Has this made you in any way kind of reexamine professionally how you do things? Like that's not to suggest you were doing something bad, but just to say that, like, maybe have you re reprioritized in some ways because of everything that's happening right now? Um, you know, I'm always trying to get better, try to do things better, get smarter, you know, with each growing day. Um, you know, I, I learned a little more about this world. So, yeah, I'm always trying to make the adjustment to make sure I'm doing things right, um, achieving the goal at hand, and using the, the smartest people and not, you know, being caught in, the, um, you know, in, in any kind of racist point of view. You know, I just want to use the best, the brightest, 
no matter who they are. Um, so, you know, I just try to make sure that we're moving in the right direction and it's all positive. You're, as I mentioned to you when we were off air, you're the first, I believe you're the first repeat guest that I had. My first season of doing this podcast, you were gracious enough to spend some time with me then. And unfortunately, I had to ask you about a dear person that you lost, which was John Singleton. This time around, it's Kobe Bryant. And I never would have guessed in a a million years that the year kind of started with his unfortunate passing. I would never have guessed that something like that would feel so long ago compared to everything that we have just gone through in these last um, few months. But nevertheless, living here in L.A., as you do, it feels different here. Um, You know, reflecting on on Kobe, you being, you know, a basketball fan, I know you're not necessarily concerned about that, but how much different does this thing, does everything kind of feel knowing that he's not here? It's just sad, you know, um, just... And every time I look at the Laker logo or Laker colors or Laker anything, it's just sad that, you know, Kobe is not here to to be with his family. You know what I mean? Um, you know, my wife watches Vanessa. She posts a lot of pictures of the kids um, and memories. And it's just sad. And, um, you know, I just feel bad. Um, you know, Kobe, you know, him passing away really got the world's attention. You know, we all, it, it got our attention. You know, COVID-19 made us go inside. Um, and then on the inside, you know, D-Nice kept us alive, you know, with his DJing. Um, and then this happened. And then, you know, with Mr. Floyd, it's, it's, you know, we can't go back to normal. You know, we can't go back to how it was before all of this. No way, no how. You know, this is the break we needed to change what needs to be changed. And we got to do it. We got to do it this election cycle. No more waiting. No more, you know, maybe next time we'll get it right. We get it right. We got to get it right before, you know, we make a decision on who's going to be the president. And who's going to be senators and this, that, and that. A lot of the talk, as you mentioned, is about to turn political because we're heading into heading into November in a very important uh, election. Are there ways in which you plan to activate around this election in order to push for that this equality that is obviously top of mind for you? Um, just pushing from behind the scenes. Um, you know, we have a lot of great people who have a lot of reach into government and we want to start you know uh using those people to first we need to perfect our plan and then use the people we know to inject this into the the national conversation um and see who's really down and who's not and who's not down shouldn't get our support straight up we got to use this vote as our weapon to uh get empowerment um, and we can't give it away and we can't let somebody think they, you know, can start being Leon Lett, you know what I mean, <laughs> at the Super Bowl doing the boogie-oogie before he crossed the goal line because he think he got our vote. No way, no how. You know, we slapped that ball right out your hand, boy. But to me, you know, this is a 
maybe four, eight year, 10 year fight to make everything work the way it's supposed to work. Maybe longer. I mean, when you think about what our ancestors had to go through, right? Whatever it takes. Yeah. Uh, you have to permit me one sort of lighthearted question. All right. Um, go for it. Actually, I'll say this. I'll, I, once a pseudo, pseudo serious one, um, but of a lighthearted nature and one very lighthearted question. All right. The one pseudo serious one is I mentioned Kobe. The other person that uh, we all lost was John Witherspoon. Yeah. And um, yeah, since the last time that, that we sat down and, you know, I know how meaningful he was in your life and in your career. I know before when we talked, you discussed that there you were formulating plans uh, to do another Friday with the original cast. Where do those plans stand now with the passing of John Witherspoon? New Line, Warner Brothers, really, they just dropped the ball on that. Um, they dragged their feet. I never got that movie made. Um, they had two scripts you know, from two different time periods, you know. Um, and for some reason, they didn't think I knew what needed to be in Friday movies. So it was mind boggling. Um, I suspect they never wanted to make the movie without Chris Tucker, no matter what they were telling me, no matter how much work they put me and my team through. Um, so I, I don't know that for a fact, but that's just, it happened, you know, we, we haven't made the movie and there's no reason for us not to. Um, now, you know, the only way it can really be made, I think, to include people that everybody love is to try to do it in the animation. But who knows, you know, um, to me, you know, these, these people have, you know, shitted on the project and just not understood how much it means to black people how much it means to uh, fans all around the world. And so this is the problem we have with, with these gatekeepers in Hollywood. Uh, this is why in my contract with Black America, you know, we, we need our own studio and it needs to be funded by the six studios who've pushed racism down our throat and who've embarrassed us all around the world uh, for a hundred years or more, they have to pay for this. They have to pay so we can greenlight our own movies without their influence. Uh, and we own the movies and they can license them or they don't have to. We can put them out on our own streaming services. But, you know, cops are, cops learn how to be bad from the TV when they little. They learn how to kick our ass when they watching Hill Street Blues or NYPD Blue or cops or, you know, anything else to show that we, you know, end up in jail. So, you know, they have to pay for this. You know, they're part of the problem. Uh, so this is the problem with Hollywood. This is the problem that I'm fighting for. This is why people are going to come after me because I'm telling the real and it needs to be done. And it's just a drop in the bucket. You know, what we're asking for is a drop in the bucket. You know, they make one movie for this amount of money uh, that we're asking for. So um, they got to do it. And if they don't, they're going to have uh, consequences and repercussions. Uh, it sounds like, though, to some degree, you're not hopeful about this being made. No. I mean, they've shown me for almost, you know, 15 years that 
nothing I give them they want to make. And if I put these scripts up, you would laugh out loud in your seat. Uh, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, but um, it's, it's, it's a shame that we have to go through this. And look, there's probably 50 black artists with 10 projects apiece that can't get made from the top of us to the ones that struggle. You know, name one black artist or actor or director or producer. And I'm not saying white guys don't have that, but they got more lanes to get it made. You know, we, we don't have advocates in, in executive positions. Our shit don't get made, period. It's on the shelf. Well, the uh, uh, the lighthearted question I have for you mm-hmm. is now you said some months ago you would not do a versus because it's like winners versus losers. You know, like it's a lot of competition. It pits people against each other yeah. just by the nature of it. However, when Jill Scott and Erica Badu, when they did their versus, it was all love. It was. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So now that you see. That, I mean, really, it's up to the artist that it can be all love, that it's not a competition. Fans will debate. They debate your music whether you do a versus or not. Are you now open to doing a versus? Nah. To me, it's a... <laughs> you, like, still know. <laughs> I mean, you know, maybe at a different moment in time, maybe, but to me, it's a distraction. Um, I ain't trying to have no fun right now. I'm trying to get work done. You know what I mean? I'm trying to get it done. and. This is my attitude, you know what I mean? Until we get some real equality around here. Uh, or, you know, or just our share. You know what I mean? Like, we need our share. And we got to fight until we get it. And so, you know, it's lighthearted and it's cool. Um, but, but, but I don't want to be involved at this point. I hear you, man. The word, uh, the word for this podcast is definitely uh, equality. Um, look, Cube, I want to thank you for spending some time with me, for coming back, thank you, uh, answering all the the questions, um, and just keep up the fight. I mean, and if people are really interested in in creating and making some change, they need to read this document that you have because uh, even though it's in progress, I think what you've laid out is very comprehensive already. And if some smart politician were paying attention, they really need to take some cues from some of the things that you have proposed in here. Because um, really, unless we decide to go in a direction of reparations, uh, systemic changes, I mean, we got to pull the roots of the tree up. We got to pull them up. Otherwise, we're going to be having this conversation again in another 10 or 15 years, if not even before then. I mean, the hope is that everybody's kids won't have to have this damn conversation. But you know, we'll kind of see where that lays. Yeah, I mean, you know, we got to make sure we're not distracted uh, by, by you know, some of these sidebars. You know, the, the, there's a job at hand that we got we to gotta, we gotta crack this nut, so to speak. So that's what it's all about. And like I said, you know, if I hurt anybody's feelings, sorry about that. But if you keep watching me long enough, you probably get your feelings hurt again. <laughs> that's just how it is, you know, because I'm not going to sit back and not say what I see. And you might not agree with it all the time. So that's why I say that. All right. Understood. Um, yeah. So everybody keep uh, keep peeping for this document. It really is 
Um, it really is something that we all need to to pay attention to. And my favorite phrase of 2020 is prosecutors are elected positions. It's my favorite phrase. Yes. <laughs> prosecutors yes. and district attorneys, elected positions. Yeah. I just want people to remember that. <laughs> okay. Sniff them out and get them out. Yep, exactly. Um, all right. Well, Cube is getting out of here. I still have a little more to go. Y'all know what's coming next. Fuck it. I'm bothered. So lately, I've been getting back into a workout routine since we're back on lockdown here in Los Angeles. Of course, I can't go back to my yoga studio. So I've just been running, walking, doing some pool exercises, just trying to lose this COVID thickness. And I know I'm not alone in that. Now, while I'm running, I've been listening to The New Jim Crow, a book by Michelle Alexander that I really should have read a long time ago, but I got caught up and didn't get to it until now. This book is extraordinary because it takes a thorough look at mass incarceration and how it's stolen generations of black men. It forces anyone who reads it to look at how everybody has been complicit. Yes, even black people too, in amplifying a system that is intentionally working to not just strip us of our dignity, but also our civil rights. And it's been working this way and working quite well for a really long time long before the explosion of mass incarceration that we've seen in the last 15 or 20 years. I highly recommend that you read this. So I got this book fresh in my mind when I come across this story published by ProPublica about a black 15-year-old girl who was sent to juvenile detention for failing to complete her online schoolwork. Now, let me just lay this all out because this does have a few layers. This 15-year-old is troubled. She's gotten into physical fights with her mom. Her mom was not seriously injured in either of the two fights that they had. She also took an iPad from school without permission, and she was caught on surveillance video stealing another student's cell phone from a school locker room. So this is what got her into the system. But fuck it, I'm bothered by so much of this because our criminal justice system is just chomping at the bit to throw away a young lady like this one. Some of you may be thinking, Now, she broke the rules. She deserves to be where she is. But there are some important things that I need you to understand. Black children are five times more likely than white youth to be incarcerated. This according to the Equal Justice Initiative. When white kids act up, they give an emotional support and counseling. Their transgressions are characterized as just innocent mistakes. They are given another chance, sometimes multiple chances, because the thinking is that their lives have value And they deserve every opportunity to straighten up. Not black kids. For one, black kids are treated as adults, even though they clearly aren't adults. When Tamir Rice was murdered by police in a park while playing with a toy gun, the 911 caller who called the police described him essentially as an adult, even though he was only 12. The system considers black kids worthless and problematic, which is why black kids are more likely to be arrested, more likely to be suspended from school, more likely to be labeled as behavior problems, even though they often aren't doing anything outside of the realm of what most normal kids do. The simple statement, Black Lives Matter, doesn't just apply to adults. It unfortunately applies to black children too. Trayvon Martin, was 17 when he was murdered and there was so much time unfortunately spent on people debating about whether this child deserved to be murdered 
because that is how little a black child's life is worth. Stay unbothered. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent and Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, executive producer is Erica Clark and project manager is Jessica Dow. Our theme music is provided by Corey Greenleaf and Ben Darwish. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. <laughs>